thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey, Jello, I was looking at the Rafale yesterday, and I just uh, was looking at and then I saw a picture of the Eurofighter, the Typhoon, right? Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out the differences between the two. Have you noticed many? Well, you know, Sunshine, we did an episode on the Rafale, as you recall, but right. I don't know that much about the Eurofighter Typhoon. Maybe we should find someone who's flown one and do an episode about it. I think that's a great idea. Give me a really Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here are your hosts, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilots Vincent Aiello and Brian Sinclair. The Audi Stewart Air Show is a fun family event providing children of all ages the opportunity to learn the importance of aviation while celebrating the service of veterans and our armed forces. Held in Stewart, Florida, just outside Port St. Lucie, November 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 2019, this three-day air show features thrilling performances by nationally known performers and historical static aircraft and vehicle displays. The weekend's festivities kick off with a spectacular Friday night air show featuring nighttime aerobatics, fireworks display, and live music with the Rotorheads Band. Saturday and Sunday features performances by the U.S. Air Force F-16 Viper Demo Team, Aeroshell Aerobatic Team, and John Klatt's Screamin' Sasquatch Jet Waco. The Audi Stewart Air Show promotes a safe family environment while providing financial support to its benefiting nonprofit organizations. Save now by purchasing your tickets in advance. Available upgrades include the Flightline Club, Spectator Seating, Premium Parking, and much more. Visit StuartAirShow.com for more information. That's the Audi Stewart Air Show, November 1st through 3rd, 2019 in Stewart, Florida. Feel the excitement. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. This is episode 58. We are indeed going to speak about the Eurofighter Typhoon today. And my name is Jello. I am your host. And joining me is my co-host, Sunshine. How you doing, bud? Hello, Jello. Doing well. How about you? Doing great, man. Things are just really going off the charts here, as always, at the podcast. You know, people really loved the C2 episode. I had more than one person say they thought it was the best episode yet. Tell you what, it is an underknown, undervalued underdog, wouldn't you say? A lot of unders there. Sure. Well, but over the top was our guest, JLo. I think he really did a good job yeah, he sharing was. the uh, aircraft with everyone. All right, man. Well, gosh, it's been busy times here lately. Sunshine, I recorded three separate interviews in one day recently. and uh, Man, you've been busy, Jello. Oh, man, I've been running around. And so those are all coming up. Anyone who's on our Patreon page has already seen the unedited versions of those available. And then neither one of us made it to the Miramar Air Show, but we did both make it to Vern's retirement. You, everyone remembers him from episode three on flight equipment. And uh, that was out where we all used to work. Yeah, that was great, man. It's kind of our own personal air show. When you say Vern actually flew into the ceremony, did a nice noisy kind of brake maneuver. So uh, it was definitely a crowd pleaser, wouldn't you say? Oh, for sure. Because he had a whole crowd yeah. there. He jumps out <laughs> of the jet, walks up to the podium and retires. So yeah, you can't get more glorious than that. No, after 20 years, man, he did both the F-18 time, obviously, but he also worked with the our spec ops guys or our SEALs, right? So he's got a lot of good stories. And a lot of those guys are based right here in Coronado. So they showed up with their tridents on and always cool to see those dudes, uh, warriors from a, Dude, totally agree. Yep, from a different community. So all right. Well, uh, let's see. We skipped right over you. Anything new in your world? No, not really. Just plugging along. Yeah. Uh, it turns out I'll probably miss in the next couple episodes. I got some work requirements that keep me out of town and I'll be kind of away from cell phones and all that for a while. So, Oh, okay. Well, no problem. We can either run it solo or uh, we'll just wait till you get back and pick it back up with you. But that sounds good. Hey, I do have to ask you this. I know it's early that, you know, not for everyone else, but for you and me recording. Have you had breakfast yet? No, I haven't even brushed my teeth. Can you tell? 
No, that doesn't come through. But uh, just want to make sure. We had someone on uh, YouTube who was upset that we spend too much time chatting before the interview, asking each other what we had for breakfast. I don't remember ever doing that, but now we have. So I hope everybody's happy. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) All right, buddy. Well, I think we have time for some listener questions today. What do you think? Sounds like a plan. Let's start with a phone call from Dan. Hey there. This is Dan, born and raised in Maryland, but uh, currently living in the Czech Republic. I had another question regarding uh, blocks versus versions, if that makes sense. So we have, for example, A10A, A10C, or F18A, B, C, these letters that are used to denote which versions of an aircraft there are. But recently I heard about blocks being used, such as the F16 Block 52D, for example. And I was just curious what the difference between blocks and versions of an aircraft. So thanks very much, and look forward to hearing more on the show. Take care. Hey, Dan, thank you very much for the question, and a great one at that, the difference between kind of the letters and the numbers. So when you're looking at the letters, or we call them series, that's uh, stemmed from a program that was drafted back in 1962, the uh, United States Tri-Service Aircraft Designation System. And it kind of evolved a little bit, and you got a little bit of a divergence between Air Force and Navy Marine Corps. Air Force, they call it MDS for Mission Design Series, so that would be the mission name. So F, you can imagine, for fighter. Design will be design number, and then series is going to be the letter A through Z. Now, it's a little bit different for the Navy Marine Corps. They're going to use TMS, or type model series. In both cases, the series, though, is going to be A through Z letters, and they're going to uh, omit I's and O's because that looks too much like ones and zeros. Now, going back a little further, back in 41, 1941, they started this idea of block numbers, and it's supposed to show minor equipment variations between the different production batches, we'll call them, just so you don't get confused. And uh, they started off with block one, two, three, but then eventually they ended up, there were some post-delivery mods, so they actually skipped some numbers, and they'd start to go 5, 10, 15. A real good example is the F-16, right? You got block 10, block 20, block 30, and so on and so forth. They also have some block fives, like 85. And that's a little different, though, than what the Navy does, right? The Navy, they're going to use lot numbers. So if you look at a a legacy F-18, an A through D, for example, a lot four has roughly, I think, 20 total in it, and it actually consists of three blocks. But you start getting a little too nitnoid on the Navy side, so we don't even use the block term, we just use the lot term. And that's obviously different for the Air Force, where they're going to use the block term. And then both of us, though, use the series letters. Mm-hmm. Jello, anything to add? No, I think that's a good discussion. I, you know, just from my point of view, my expertise was in the F-18. And so I knew that the first Charlie model F-18 was a lot 10, and that continued all the way through lot 21, I think was the last one. And then the D was also in there. So you couldn't necessarily tell if it was a C or a D just by the lot, but you could tell if it was an A, B, or C, D. If it was like a lot six, you knew it was a A or a B. So yeah, it's just a different way for us to keep track of everything. And like you said, those incremental upgrades that they make along the way. All right, should we move on to another question from Gregory Shalenko? Yeah. He's a Patreon wingman. Sure. So Jello, this one's to you, buddy. He asks, Canada is choosing a replacement for its aging fleet of CF-18s. Obviously, the no-brainer choice would be the F-35, except today's economical and political realities push for cheaper solutions, which makes the whole process much more interesting. What other modern fighter jets do you think would be the best candidates, considering Canada's geography, climate, and scale of operations? Well, I believe you get what you pay for, right? So what's the old expression? You got a champagne appetite, but a beer budget. I mean, (laughs) if you want the best, I think you pay for the F-35. At least that's my point of view here in the West. Some might argue for different aircraft in Europe or even uh, some of the Russian flanker family of aircraft coming out. But Uh, I I think it's hard to beat the F-35 and folks will hear that on an upcoming episode with one of our guests who did fly it. But that being said, I think if you wanted a good compromise, Thinking about Canada with its climate and weather and their mission and the fact that they've already flown the CF-18, I think the Super Hornet is a good choice because you've got the multi-engine, you've got the people and the logistics parts and supply systems in place that it wouldn't be that big of a leap to go from the CF-18, as they call it, or the Legacy Hornet, as I would know it, uh, to the Super Hornet. And even for the pilots, it's fairly simple. So I think to me, that seems like a logical choice. Yeah, I totally agree, Jello. I would almost say also, just specifically, I should say, the uh, Super Hornet Block 3, right? So you got the conformal wing tanks, you got the increased Link 16 capability, so that TTNT, that tactical targeting network technology, plus you have Erst, right, that infrared search and track, mm-hmm. as well as they got some new fancy targeting computers I had the chance to use when I was at VX Land, and that was the uh, DTP, or Distributed Targeting Processor. Ooh. 
So pretty impressive fusion, if you will, of map data to uh, tactical symbology and whatnot. And it does have slightly lower RCS, but, you know, the, that'd be radar cross-section. But thing is, you're going to hang a bunch of stores off it, so <laughs> the RCS isn't that big of a deal, right? right? And then also, finally, the, the service life has been extended from the factory, if you will, spec of 6,000 flight hours to 10,000 flight oh, hours. So, all right. Yeah, and then Boeing, you know, back in March, they already have that $4 billion B billion dollar contract with the U.S. government or the Navy specifically to produce 78 of those block three. So some dirty math back of the envelope calculations, that's about 51 million in aircraft. So maybe that's a little better price tag than the F-35. Well, plus the more that are purchased around the world, the cheaper each one of them gets. So that could be a benefit either for them or for the U.S. Uh, I know in the past, I think it was the Kuwaitis who bought the enhanced performance engines in the Legacy Hornet, and so we ended up getting those. So yeah, it could be a benefit for everybody. But yeah, that seems a good choice. And I wasn't as familiar with the, what'd you call it? Block three? Oh, block three. Block three. Yeah. Okay. Well, getting back to blocks and uh, lots, right? So, yeah. Oh, well. That <laughs> yeah. so sounds pretty impressive. But, yeah, I think that would be a good choice for them. And they could have a mix even of single and two seats if they thought they needed it. So, good question, Gregory. All right, Sunshine, let's take another phone call. Hey, Joe. My name is Christopher. I'm from South Florida. And I'm starting ROTC next year. I wanted to know how I could prepare myself to be successful there. I was also wondering if you had any tips about when you went through ROTC and what you would tell yourself. Also, how can I help my chances in securing a pilot slot? Thanks for listening to my question, and thank you for your service. This podcast has been incredibly useful, and I really appreciate all the help and information you're putting out there. Keep up the great work. Hi, Christopher. I feel like we've answered this on a previous episode, although I don't have a database of what questions we've answered on which show, so I can't point you to the exact right one. But I would refer to what I said before, which is you give everything you got to any task or chore that they give you, no matter how trivial, because you're not only getting things done, but you're building a reputation, and that reputation will impact what you are able to do both in ROTC and when it comes selection time. And then, oh, by the way, you build muscle memory and habits for your career, which will be important because even as we've talked about recently on another episode, you might get little jobs like first lieutenant in your squadron. And if you grumble about it, that's one thing. But if you do it well, then good things will happen. So I would say you just need to do your best at everything. Try to study and uh, get ahead as much as you can. Keep yourself balanced physically, emotionally, spiritually, and otherwise. And then when it comes time for the pilot slot, you know, this is the hard one because as we've talked about many times on this show, you can do everything in your power and it might just be that for whatever reason, that week, that month, they don't need too many pilots and they just don't have a slot for you. And that's sometimes how it goes. It's not the best answer and it's hard for people to swallow because in this world, especially with on-demand things in our pockets and everywhere else as far as cell phones go, I mean, we, if we want something, we can pretty much get it. You feel like sushi, you know, Uber deliver eats or whatever it is, you could have it at your door in mm-hmm. no time at all, but it's not that way in the military. And so it might just be that even if you do get pilot, you don't get jets if that's what you want, you get something else. And we've had people on the show say they enjoy what they end up getting because you got to make the most of it. So that would be my answer to you, Christopher. And uh, Sunshine, what did I miss? Uh, I would just say everything, all of the above, and do it with a smile. Well, you've certainly personified that through your career. (laughs) Excellent. Well, hey, I'll put the last one to you then. This is an email from Hayden. He says, could you go over the differences between East and West Coast Squadron's aviators? I've picked up that they both have their own traditions and such and wonder what you guys may know in regards to the different stereotypes in other coasts, etc. Yeah, Hayden. Well, thank you very much for that question. And I think even though geographically they're displaced by a lot, three time zones, 3,000 miles, all that stuff, the standardization that we have done since we've pretty much gone to one platform has been bar none impeccable, I would say, with Top Gun standardization. Now, when it comes to the personalities, though, so personalities are going to drive a lot, obviously, and, and actually the skipper's personality will drive the command climate. I have had a chance to serve on both the East and the West Coast. And Jello, I don't know about you, but what I've noticed, the West Coast not when it comes to flight discipline, not when it comes to tactical knowledge or systems knowledge, but just basically the ready room demeanor. It's just a little more laid back. I kind of think as, as the closer you get to D.C., the more formal you be. As a, what I mean by that is big Navy, right? So the East Coast guys, I think, are, and this is the Navy in general, maybe just a tad more 
worried because of the proximity of the central leadership as opposed to the West Coast. <laughs> and someone else could shoot me for that, yeah, but what do you think, Joe? Well, I think there could be some truth to that. It sounds like you're saying uh, West Coast is a little more Spicoli and uh, East Coast is a little more suit and tie, but I, my only <laughs> East Coast tour was as a junior officer in Jacksonville, Florida, and it was my Nugget tour, and I had pretty much no idea about anything. I was just trying to hold on. And uh, everything after that was the West Coast. But I think to your point, in the old days, each squadron commander could run the squadron the way he wanted. And with the advent of the Strike Fighter Weapons Tactics Program, which kind of came into being about the same time Top Gun switched its mantra, if you will, from taking a guy midway through his first tour and now making it more of a professional kind of in between the first tour and second tour type of training that it really did standardize across the whole fleet. And to your point, we've also gone from a lot of different types of aircraft to variants of the F-18. And so also with connectivity and everything else, we have, I think, homogenized to the point that I don't see that much difference. And I don't think so. But yeah, I think we also touched on this way back when someone asked us about the mother trophy. And even that has migrated west and far east, frankly. So it's a good question. And now, of course, Hayden, I can't speak to Air Force or Marine Corps. Never did a joint tour and wasn't uh, Air Force or Marine. But from the Navy's point of view, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much uh, spot on there, Sunshine. All right, Jello. So without further ado, should we roll into the interview? Yeah. So you had a chance to listen, Enzo. What did you think? I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I love the way he delineates the differences, the different characteristics, if you will, of that aircraft versus, say, the Rafale or even the Gripen. So I think the listeners will really enjoy. Let's do it. Okay, today dialing into the Fighter Pilot Podcast, all the way from just north of Munich, Germany, is German Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Lorenz Schaufelhofer. Enzo, how you doing, bud? Good, how are you doing, Cello? I'm doing quite well, man. Thanks for making this interview work out, and how are things in Germany? I uh, can't complain. As I already um, told you or emailed you a couple of weeks ago when we got into contact, I just got back with my family from the States from a four-year tour in the States. So right now we're still phasing in. We've been here for three months about now. And uh, but I'm back flying on the Eurofighter and it's all fun. Okay, good stuff. And I just want to provide a little background for the listener. So some of the German Air Force mechanics reached out to me at one point on email and said, hey, you should do an episode on the Eurofighter. And I said, great. Do you know anybody? And they said, uh, and then supposedly somehow they found you. So uh, you're here to talk about the Eurofighter Typhoon. So before we do, Enzo, tell us a little bit about you. Where are you from and where did you go to school and what have you done in the military so far? Sounds like you've spent some time in the States too. That is a firm. Um, so Basically, I was born in uh, Ingolstadt, Bavaria, in Germany. That's right now where I'm at. So the Air Force had mercy and sent me back home for my last assignment for the last three years now. I grew up here all my life, basically. I went to school here, not a military school. I went to a civilian uh, college, basically. And then I entered the Air Force Academy. For us, that's a little bit different than for you guys because we can do a short officers course without the uh, college, basically. That's what I did. That's what we typically used to do for a flying career. Then I entered the Air Force in 98. I did this uh, officer school, like I said, in Fürstenfeldbruck. That's also near Munich in Germany. And then uh, off to Shepard already in 2001. And uh, from there, through the normal B course back then on the tornado, I flew the tornado from 2002 till 2010. In 2010, then I converted to the Eurofighter and uh, flew that till 2015. And then I uh, got lucky and got a tour as an exchange guy in the States. And I flew with the 310s top hats in Luke Air Force Base. I flew the Viper there. And uh, in between my tour, I got transferred down to Tucson, and uh, at Tucson International Airport, I flew the Viper as well with the Air National Guard, the 195th. Okay. So that was a lot of fun. What years were you there, just out of curiosity? Uh, just now. Like, we okay. went over there in 2015, and we came back three months ago. I flew the F-16 a little bit in Fallon on my penultimate tour, but I left there in 15. But we used to go down to Tucson a lot. They helped us out with our block 15 A's. So must have just missed you. Too bad. All right. Yeah. So when you said Shepard earlier, you meant Shepard Air Force Base. So you did your pilot training in the States? That is correct. Um, every German jet pilot goes through NGIPT, the Euronado Joint Jet Pilot Training in Shepard Air Force Base. 
Yeah, so everybody, every German fighter pilot has a tour in the States, one tour at least, basically. And then in your case, you had a chance to come back. I'm guessing uh, Phoenix and Tucson just a bit different than Munich? <laughs> Uh, yeah, weather-wise, definitely. Right now, for us, it's already starting to become fall over here, basically. The weather and the temperatures are getting colder, rainier. We had the first fog yesterday, mm. and uh, in Phoenix, I guess it's still above 100 degrees every day, right? Yeah, probably so. So, yes, we're recording this uh, on September 11, actually, and uh, you were kind enough before we rolled to give your remarks on this specific date. Thank you very much. All right, let's get right into the Eurofighter Typhoon. Tell us, for starters, uh, what was it designed to do? It was purely designed when they first came up with an idea, basically, to do a multi-role, uh, not sorry, multi-role, a multi-nation uh, mm. fighter aircraft just to counteract the um, Russians, basically, back then when uh, the wall was still up. And so they were looking into a pure air-to-air fighter that was better then the MiG-29 and then later on the flanker, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, so its only design mission in the beginning was uh, to do air-to-air and to fly high, fast, and shoot the MRAM really far. And since then, it's been adapted for air-to-surface, as so many fighters have, correct? Yeah, when the political requirements change, basically, and yeah, the Air Force's needs change with that, basically, then the... Uh, multi-role got introduced in the Eurofighter as well. And we're still somewhat in the beginning of that. So we're not there where we want it to be, basically. Uh, It all takes always a long time to integrate new weapons, the flight control system, everything needs to be changed. That's a lot of work and a lot of licensing that has to be done to make it basically street legal, air legal in this case. (laughs) And we're still working on it and we want to integrate more weapons. We're not there where, for example, the Viper is yet uh, in terms of how many weapons are integrated. It can do, obviously, a little bit more Gucci stuff since it is newer, but um, we only have a couple of weapons integrated so far for air to ground. And you obviously have a front row seat, no pun intended, in that comparison, because how many hours did you end up with in the F-16? In the F-16, 530-something hours. Okay. And you have, what, 1,000 in the uh, Typhoon, I believe you told me? Uh, About 980, so just shy of that. (laughs) Well, we'll call that 1,000. Okay, so sure, if you can draw some comparisons, that will certainly help me and a lot of my American listeners. That'll be great. And am I correct in uh, the tornado was also multinational? Was the Typhoon the uh, United Kingdom, Germany, Italy, and I believe Spain? That's correct, yes. In the beginning, when the project started, France was in there as well, but they were withdrawing from the program because they, first of all, wanted to have a new fighter faster than this whole multinational thing was going, basically. And they had some different requirements. For them, air-to-surface was already a big deal when the other nations were still thinking mostly about air-to-air. And then, obviously, out of that, a pretty similar-looking fighter, a French fighter, developed, uh, like the Typhoon, and it's the Rafale, right? Uh, Right, which we've had an episode on. And speaking of that, to me, in my untrained eye here in the West, not seeing the uh, three fighters so well, how can I distinguish between a Rafale, a Typhoon, and maybe even the Gripen? Because they all seem to have some commonalities. So the Gripen, let's start with that first. Uh, if you want to put it side by side, it's the smallest fighter of these. Um, it's a lightweight aircraft, basically. Okay. Um, it has a similar delta wing, that's correct, um, but it has only one engine. So that is a big difference. It has some canards as well, but those canards are, um, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think they're not moving. They're not part of the flight control software on the Gripen. For the Rafale, it looks pretty similar, I have to admit that. It's also a little bit smaller than the Typhoon, but only really if you put them side by side. Uh, the probably most distinct thing, they have their air refueling probe all the time out, basically. It's a ah. fixed mounted probe, and for us, we can retract that, basically. But other than that, you need to be pretty specific at what to look at. The intakes look a little bit different and stuff like that. But other than that, it's probably pretty hard to distinguish. Sure. And that's a common question I get on the show about the Hornet and the Super Hornet. You know, Mm -hmm. when you just see one of them, it's difficult. But side by side, they can be distinguished because the Super Hornet's larger and the intakes, to your point. So on the 
typhoon, you have very pronounced, I would say, rectangular intakes under the wing. Yep, that's correct. We have uh, two big intakes under the wing. They're um, movable intakes uh, to make its performance better under high altitude, fast speeds, basically, to guide the airflow into the engines, basically. So there are some big movable parts, probably as every modern fighter has for its intakes, to guarantee a smooth airflow, basically under every uh, circumstance you can imagine, under every mm. flight condition you can imagine towards the engines there. Let me ask you this, on the ground, is it a problem? They seem to be positioned right behind the nose. Is there any foreign object debris concerns? Not as much as in the Viper, actually. So um, yes, totally. We sweep our runways and everything every day just to make sure it's not a problem, hopefully, for us. But um, the gear is way higher. I don't know if you have, uh, have ever seen a typhoon standing in life on the ground. But since we got everything underneath this delta wing that's basically on the bottom of the aircraft, on the bottom of the fuselage, and from there the gear comes out, and all our weapons and everything is carried externally underneath that. The aircraft sits pretty high up. So if you're actually in the last chance, for example, sitting next to an Eagle, a F-15, and wait, which is a pretty big aircraft, you look down into the F-15 cockpit. Oh, okay. That's how and, high up it is, basically. Okay. Is last chance another name for like the hold short, we would call it? In last chance, we call it actually in the Air Force as well. In uh, Tucson, oh. uh, the Air Force calls it EOR, end of runway, basically. That's where okay. the maintainers look over the jet, basically, and ah. uh, make sure there's no fluids leaking and stuff like that. Yes. Okay. So maybe on an aircraft carrier, in my parlance, would be like a final checker right before they catapult yeah. you off. Yeah. All right. So is there one particular mission you feel the Typhoon does particularly well? It's still air to air, obviously. <laughs> so All right. um, it was designed for that, and you still feel that the aircraft has just a spectacular performance in air to air, in dogfighting, and as well in BBR uh, flying. Okay. Right now, we're really waiting on a new weapon because the aircraft can do more than the MRAM we're shooting right now. Oh. Um, so the radar, everything outranks the range of the radar uh, of the uh, MRAM, basically. And yeah, that is the mission it was designed for. And it's just a super fun mission with a lot of high SA in that aircraft. Sure. Okay. So whether it's a self-performed sweep mission or an offensive counter air or defensive counter air, or even in the visual arena, the Typhoon is good at all those. Okay. The most fun, obviously, as always for a fighter pilot is probably the basic fighter maneuvering, the BFM or ACM, oh, yeah. right? In the visual arena, because... Uh, we're similar to a Viper. We're A-limited, so we're not like a Hornet. We cannot point at any point, basically, but the, through the huge engines, that's probably the best part on this aircraft, we have thrust available in any flight attitude, basically, in any speed regime. Wow. And it can go from super slow to super fast. If you misjudge your BFM and closure, you know what I'm talking about is always a oh, yeah. problem, right? So if you're chasing another guy basically and he's doing a good job and he's trying to spill you out in front for us, mm -hmm. typically that's not too big of a problem because we just plug in the afterburners and go basically <laughs> 90 degrees nose high and park behind the other aircraft. So wow. kind of like it's not the same than a Raptor obviously, but thrust to weight ratio, we have a similar thrust to weight ratio than a Raptor. I always call it a pilot's aircraft because it's so much fun. If mm -hmm. nothing else works and uh, you have not a good day, but you plug in the afterburners and you just go and you have a smile <laughs> on your face. So uh, um, that's always fun. Yeah, it sounds like it. Did you have a chance to BFM with a F-16 in the Typhoon or vice versa when you were in the F-16? Yes, uh, not in the F-16, unfortunately, because okay. uh, we only came over to Europe once. That was for a CAS exercise last year. Um, we okay. went to the Czech Republic and uh, we were configured for air to ground only with two bags and targeting pod and stuff like that. Sure. The other way around, AFIRM, I did a lot of BFM against Vipers. Uh, since we have a lot of uh, Viper user nations in Europe, mm -hmm. the Dutchess, the Belgians, um, like all those nations around us, basically around Germany, fly F-16s. So uh, I've even fought American Vipers out of Spangdalen, which is oh. a American base in Germany. Um, okay. Flying Vipers here. 
Now, we like to say on this show that, you know, the box matters, but a lot of times it comes down to the pilot in it. Did you find that to be true? I mean, the aircraft fairly matched or? Okay. Totally true. It's all 9G fighters, right? Uh, right. The rate game plan and everything is pretty much similar. So the thrust to weight ratio makes a difference. Like I said, in slow speed regime, we typically have an advantage. And even like I told you before, if we screw it up and uh, we don't do too well, we don't have those problems like in the Viper or I heard on another episode on the Hornet, you guys, um, we don't have energy issues because <laughs> you put your left hand forward and you typically go again. Yeah. Someone needs to give that capability to the F-18, but I suppose that's yeah. basically what an F-22 is because it doesn't have the energy or the AOA concerns that a lot of the F-18s and F-16s do. You know, they have one or the other. So It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, call sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. Now, in the West, we've got blocks and lots, depending on what aircraft we're talking about. I believe for the Typhoon, we have tranches. Is that correct? As we talk yep. through variants? Okay. Yep. So what can you tell me about... I mean, we don't have to go over every single variant, but what are some of the ones that were, say, operational? All right. Uh, in the beginning, we had the Trench 1, and that was the pure air fighter, basically. We still have okay. a couple of those, but not too many more, because they all got replaced by the Trench 2 and Trench 3, basically. With that, because it's all now computer fighters, right? We got, mm -hmm. I flew probably in my life 15 different software upgrades of this aircraft. Some of them were big ones with where even the flight controls were affected, but most of them are just computer and hardware changes basically and modern updates in the beginning when we got the Eurofighter. I was not like on the first wave, but pretty soon after we got it, I became a uh, Eurofighter guy and still a lot of modifications with typical problems a new fighter and new computer fighter has basically mm -hmm. in the beginning probably kind of the same what the f-35 is uh, going through right now right so yeah right now uh, the newest ones obviously tranche uh, three and the version two is basically having the same capabilities than the tranche three um, they're getting upgraded to the same standards and with that the air-to-ground integration was the big one for that. Okay. Like I said, Trench 1 could only do air-to-air. -air and we, for example, Austria has a couple of typhoons for their QRA, quick reaction alert, meaning uh, air defense mission just to keep the sovereignty of its country, basically, like every country has. And they have only those uh, Trench 1 aircraft just to, they do only air-to-air -air with that. Mm -hmm. They don't need okay. anything else. Have you flown all three variants? Yeah, I, okay. I've flown all three of them. The, yeah. As a pilot, you won't notice too big of a difference in terms of flying performance. The only mm -hmm. big difference is obviously all the software, the buttons uh, change regularly, all the commands change and all that gotcha. stuff. Gotcha. And the Trench 3 is going to introduce a new radar, is that correct also? Uh, yeah, we wait for that <laughs> basically okay. every day. Um, it's an AISA radar, obviously, right? So... Um, uh Active, Electronic, electronically yeah. scanned Scan array. array, array yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. That is what every fighter wants, obviously, right? Oh, yes. Uh, nowadays, we still have a pretty good standard uh, radar. It's called the Captor. That is mm -hmm. the name of the radar. You probably can find more on Wikipedia over that, <laughs> um, and the unclassified stuff. Right. And it's still way more capable than what I've seen on other jets, basically. But yes, in the future, we want the... 
electronic scan array radar. Okay. So there's no naval variant of this, which is part of the reason no. the French pulled out. And yeah. are there only single seats or are there single and two seats? We have two seats for training, basically. Same sure. capabilities, just uh, a little more, a bit more limited on fuel. But mm-hmm. other than that, you can perform every mission with the dual seats as well. Okay. Um, we don't have too many of these. So a typical unit has probably two to three of those uh, dual seat trainers, except our training wing they right. probably have like over half of their typhoons as uh, dual seaters and is it only for training or will a unit that you said had a couple will they use them for any sort of missions it totally depends um, we use our trainers every once in a while for regular missions as well just if we need a flyable aircraft basically and the only thing that's left is a trainer <laughs> um, if we got bigger missions planned for example right then we'll fly the trainer as well because like i said it's only limited on fuel but that's not even too gross so it has a little bit less endurance but you still can perform all the mission a normal uh, single seat version is doing gotcha well let's talk about the reason it looks the way it does and i think we've already covered all this but it is a two engine single seat mostly single vertical stabilizer but has that large delta wing and then the canards on the front yep so basically the aircraft um, was designed to be aerodynamically unstable the aircraft doesn't fly without its computers anymore you Mm -hmm. as a pilot have no means of controlling it manually basically if all computers would quit Um, the system is redundant that's probably the case with most of the modern fighters nowadays, right? But there's no cables, no springs, or nothing attached to the flight control system anymore. We have four different flight control computers that uh, have four different sensors, basically, of uh, the surrounding air. If you take a look at a picture of the Typhoon, underneath the nose, we don't have a pitot tube anymore. Like, for example, the F-16 has a pitot tube uh, mm-hmm. in the front of a Troidome. We don't have that anymore um, for us. Underneath the nose, like kind of behind where the radar connects to the fuselage, there is um, four sensors, basically. That's more or less our pitot tubes. And those four different sensors sense everything. They sense static uh, pressure, dynamic pressure, all that stuff. And those go into four different flight control computers. And yeah, they control the aircraft. Obviously, we need one of them at least to fly. But other than that, three of them could fail and the aircraft would be still airborne, basically. Right. Like I said, it's aerodynamically unstable. It makes it a lot uh, more agile than a stable aircraft that has to do something with the um, position where the lift is created and where the uh, down force, basically, or the weight pulls down. doesn't matter. We don't need to go too much into detail here. But it turns better. That's the... That's yeah. the reason why it was built like that. And for that, we need those canards in the front. Okay. Even if you're flying straight and level, they're moving. They're keeping the aircraft straight and level, basically. How did you find the canards affected your visibility, particularly compared to the F-16? Air to air doesn't matter at all. But for example, flying CAS, right. when you want to look downwards towards the ground, at some points, yes, right. you have to maneuver the aircraft out of the way because the canards could be in the way. That is true. And that's probably a reason as well why it was built for air to air, not for air ground. So, <laughs> Did you get a chance to do basically general purpose roll-ins with the F-16? Yeah. Where you get to a certain point on the canopy at the target is and you roll in and go? Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So that would be very difficult, I would think, in the Typhoon. But again, to your point, it wasn't designed for that purpose. So we've already touched on it a little bit. Let's move into armament. Let's start with a gun. It has a, what is it, 27 millimeter? 27 millimeter gun, yes. Okay. Um, That's a Mauser gun. That's not a Gatling gun. That's just what it's called, basically. So it has only one barrel, and there's shots coming out one after each other, basically. So the rounds that we're putting out there are not nearly as high as in the Viper, for example. The Viper has having a Gatling gun. The rate of fire? Yeah, the rate of fire, Mm -hmm. yeah. So on the M61, we can get 6,000 rounds a minute. What do you advertise for your Mauser? We get about 10 shots a second-ish. Okay, compared to 100 per second. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then I think you carry 150, what was it, 150-ish? Yeah. Yep. All right. How about for air-to-air? We shoot the MRAM as our long-range weapon, basically. So um, we're desperately waiting on a new weapon there. Maybe we can touch on that here in a second. And then we carry the IRST, that's what it's called. Um, 
So that's basically a German version of the AIM-9X, if you will. It's an IR-seeking missile, okay. pretty decent mm -hmm. range, pretty long range. Um, it's slewed to the helmet, uh, to the helmet-mounted side. It has, without going too much into detail, but I had the direct comparison now, right? Um, it has pretty mm -hmm. similar capabilities than the AIM-9X. And also queuable with a helmet-mounted yep. symbology yep. system? Exactly right. And then how about chaff and flares, of course? Mm -hmm. We do. And external fuel tanks? Yep, we can mount up to three fuel tanks. Typically, air configuration would be two, even for BFM, because the aircraft has no G limits. Um, even with two uh, external tanks, we can pull 9G, basically. Wow. So that's pretty cool. Um, it still maneuvers better than with one bag than with two bags obviously um, just because of the more drag um, mm -hmm. but other than that it's still pretty capable aircraft with two external bags there and then we have like yeah. you said chef and flare all integrated into the aircraft basically uh, oh, wow. on both sides pretty effective stuff nice and so what type of weapons you don't have to necessarily tell us which ones but as far as for air to surface what have they adapted i assume laser or gps guided yep. something precise laser and gps guided weapons uh, because you asked me about the, mm -hmm. the dumb bomb roll-in mission we unfortunately don't do that anymore <laughs> unfortunately because that okay. is a lot of fun to do as a mission basically <laughs> but we only have uh, precision guided ammunition yeah. integrated and the gun that's the only fun stuff we we do is air to ground striving basically oh, okay yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, Enzo, because I agree with you. There's something satisfying about rolling in a couple miles above the ground and dropping a ballistic bomb and getting it, you know, 50 feet maybe or right on the target, yep. compensating for the wind and altitude and speed and everything else. That That is quite satisfying. You just get so. the immediate feedback if you did a good job or not, basically. And that's with, right. with precision-guided yep. ammunition, it's just easier. Yeah, that's right. All right, so performance-wise, you told us 9Gs, and even with two bags of gas, that's impressive. How high have you had one, and how fast have you had one? Um, me, personally, I don't like high altitude too much, but uh, I've been up to like 48,000 <laughs> feet. Um, the ceiling we're cleared up to is 55,000 feet. And then speed-wise, <laughs> I can tell you a pretty short, funny story. Sure. When we had the aircraft new, we didn't... We had the impression it was a carefree jet, right? So it will give you warnings about everything. And it is pretty much a carefree jet. So we had two guys in my squadron, uh, as well as two instructor pilots, flying red air, and they wanted to present the high fast flyer. They're in line of breast formation, like two to three miles apart, and just pushing it up and letting it rip, basically. Uh -huh. At 1.8 Mach, they both got a caption and an audio warning max speed, basically. And uh, they always sped both aircraft at the same time because we never thought about any <laughs> limits or something like that because up to that point it was just uh, a carefree aircraft more or right. less. So um, that was new to us basically. The aircraft obviously has the capability to go way faster. It depends on external storage, uh, what's on there. Um, right. So it can go over Mach 2 um, like probably most modern fighters nowadays. The engines will do that, definitely. That is the, like, okay. like I alluded to before, the engines are probably the best part about this aircraft. Pretty much fail-safe. Oh, I've never cool. heard of an engine failure uh, on that jet, and the thrust is always there. And how much thrust does an engine put out in afterburner, let's say? That's a good question in pounds, because um, we calculate in kilonewton. So basically comparable oh. um, to a F. 15 engine um, so we probably produce pretty much the same thrust than a 15 uh, eagle however the aircraft is way lighter um, so that's the difference there okay like a ge 129 uh, sorry a pratt and whitney 129 ish will put out the same thrust but we have two of these, right? The Viper has one of them, uh, right. and our aircraft is not double the weight of the Viper. It's just a little bit heavier. Because it's a full composite aircraft, right? So that was a new thing back then. There's basically no metal on this aircraft anymore. It's all composite material. <laughs> That's actually pretty amazing when you think about it. At least as the skin goes, it's mostly composites. Yeah. So. That's pretty cool. Now, this is the part where it's always difficult to ask someone what they don't like about their aircraft, but strengths-wise, I think you've told us a couple. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess as I'm rebranding this question, it's what was your favorite thing about it, and what was one thing that 
it was either a disadvantage compared to others or maybe they should have fixed, but for whatever reason, budgetary or otherwise, they didn't. So strengths and weaknesses is what we used to call it. Because I have the direct comparison now, and every pilot will tell you probably this, who's flown the Viper at the HODAS, the um, how hands on throttle throttle and stick, how the avionics are managed is just fantastic in the Viper, right? It's just so easy, and it totally makes sense no matter what sensor you integrate, if it's the radar, the target pod, or whatsoever. There's always the same logic behind it, so it's really easy for the operator to understand that logic. That is unfortunately not as easy in the Eurofighter. We have pretty awesome capabilities, but typically it's a little bit harder and you need to think a little bit more in the jet to get to those functions, basically. So, and I tell you the reason why that is, because the Eurofighter was designed for voice control. So for voice commands, basically, I think there was like 260 commands or something like that, um, that should be... uh, that should do something on the chat. So you just would push a button like in your car, hey, give me a radio channel, this and this, and it would Mm -hmm. change to that. So you could change squawks, you could target somebody, you could send out stuff via the link and everything via voice. Unfortunately, over time, that system didn't work out too well. First of all, the recognition of your voice wasn't as good as expected. So every once in a while it could happen that you wanted to change a radio channel or something like that. And inadvertently you change your squawk because the aircraft misunderstood some <laughs> stuff like that, right? Um, <laughs> okay. And on the other uh, hand, every time you're talking to your chat, you miss stuff that's coming in from the outside. So, and that was the bigger problem actually for us. So that's probably the reason why the HODAS or the focus was not on the HODAS in the development phase, basically, because they were putting a lot of efforts in those voice commands there. It didn't quite work out the way they had hoped. But it's getting better. Like okay. with every software upgrade, um, now we go more and more into a direction where uh, that all is more user-friendly, basically. Gotcha. Now, how about notoriety? Where would anyone have seen the Typhoon either in the news or in movies or TV shows? I mean, is it notorious for anything? Is it used by any performance teams? Like the F-16, of course, is in the Thunderbirds. Uh, Is the Typhoon well known? Uh, I guess over Europe, yes, because uh, like I mentioned before, four countries uh, built it basically and Austria bought it. Um, Saudi Arabia, not Saudi Arabia, sorry, the UAE's bought it as well. So, um, but in Europe, all over the place for air shows, it's a well-known guest probably. Unfortunately, not with a demo team, just with solo performances, but pretty much every nation that flies it has a solo display performance. Yeah, and so we tour around Europe with that. Does it have its German version of Top Gun that made the uh, Tomcat so popular? <laughs> Unfortunately <laughs> not. We all wish for that, but probably we're not enough people for uh, that. We only have 80 million compared to you guys, what, like 340 million yeah. Americans or something. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Now, how about, is there a particular flight that you think back of fondly in the aircraft, or have you deployed and had some particularly exciting missions or ever had to step out of one, as we say? Um, any good sea stories in the Typhoon? The good thing is, no, I never had to step out of one. Um, I've good. not been deployed with it because I was always at our training base. I was deployed three times uh, with the tornado back then to Afghanistan. Mm. But unfortunately, or maybe fortunately for my family, uh, not with the typhoon. And like I said, probably a good thing for my family that we didn't have to deploy it with the typhoon. Good stories. Right. Um, well, like I told you before, every time you're having a bad day. And uh, when I was back in our training wing that was up in the northeast of Germany, we had the Baltic Sea directly next to our airport, basically. Mm -hmm. What we would do, we would just go out over international waters, basically, um, outside of the coastline, and we could fly down to 200 feet, and we just would see how this thing accelerates, basically. And uh, we would go down to probably like 200 knots, plug in the afterburners, and then before we go to supersonic, that took you only maybe like five seconds from like those 200 knots to like where you would go supersonic. And that's just that always, always, always puts a smile on your face and it makes your day. Five seconds? And probably not even. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, that's incredible. like a catapult. I mean, come on. It wow. is. And the faster you get, the faster acceleration becomes, right? Because more air gets into the intake. So it's just, uh, uh, it's just amazing. 
Yeah, it sounds like a real joy to fly. It is. Figure out a way it is a pilot go get aircraft. a ride in one. Yeah. Well, gosh, this has been a lot of fun. What else about the Typhoon have I not asked you that you think the listeners need to know or should know? Maybe there are a couple of future upgrades we're waiting on as new weapons, especially air-to-air. Uh, we uh, scratched on the AISA radar a little bit. That is uh-huh. the radar, and with that, obviously, we need a new weapon. So that is as well. It's called a Meteor. You probably can look that up. A couple of I won't give you any details. It's a radar missile, and that uh, the new thing about that, it has a scram jet. So it has actually the missile as a jet engine, and with that, it will go a long distance. So we're waiting for that right. because that will be a super awesome missile. Um, I don't know if I'm still in the Air Force because I only have three years left uh, uh, before I retire. Right? So probably, unfortunately, not. They're doing test shots and everything right now but until it's getting fielded out to the fleet. It's probably going to take another couple of years, unfortunately. Okay. So that's going to be a major upgrade um, for us then. Just okay. trying to get more ammunition uh, integrated for air-to-ground stuff probably is a big thing we're working on right now. So three years left, and then you're going to retire? Are you going to fly the whole time? Uh, Yeah, Uh, I was lucky through my whole Air Force career. I was flying, so I accumulated uh, just over 3,000 hours by now on three different fighter jets, which uh, is a lot of fun. And um, yeah, this is my last assignment here. And uh, And then what? Good question. (laughs) So we enjoyed our time in the the States a lot. So we're having a game plan ready. And uh, if you ask our American friends, they're always pushing us into that direction to go back to the States. And my wife and I and our kids, we want to go back as well. Well, there's a couple of issues with that green card and stuff like that. But hey, hopefully I can... Mm -hmm end up someday as your co-pilot when you're the captain and we're flying a couple of passengers <laughs> through the States would be fun. Well, I'm sure the airlines would love to have you. They are pretty eager to take all comers. Yeah. And so I'm sure you'd fit the bill quite nicely. Well, that's awesome. This has been a lot of fun. And so I want to thank you for taking the time today and man, just a couple of years left. So on behalf of your countrymen, thanks for your service to Germany and NATO and all of our allies. Uh, before we let you go, you've listened to the show. You know the deal. Yep. We need to know how someone came up with Enzo, or maybe is that something you decided? I'm not sure how call signs work in no, Germany. No, call signs work exactly the same. Since we're NATO <laughs> trained and American trained, uh, since every fighter pilot is going through Shepard, uh, we basically adopted right. the American custom. So for me, um, I didn't do anything stupid while flying, but uh, soccer is a pretty popular uh, sport in Germany compared to you as football, mm-hmm. for example, right? So I played soccer my whole life, basically. And um, with that, I was never a good technical player, but I could always like run faster and longer than most of my opponents. So already prior I entered the Air Force, I had the nickname of uh, Ferrari. And with that, Enzo Ferrari, like the car, the uh, sports car, the Italian sports car, basically. And I like for it. some reason, it carried over into the Air Force, and uh, everybody's <laughs> just calling me Enzo. All right. Uh, well, that story, could certainly yeah. be much worse, as you know. Yeah, I'm sure you know definitely. people with some really awful call <laughs> yeah. signs. All right, Enzo. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I want to thank you for your time and dialing in from just north of Munich, Germany. And unless you got any parting shots, I think we can wrap this up and get out of here. Thanks, Cello, for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right, you're welcome. The sky's the limit at the Bell Fort Worth Alliance Air Show, October 19 and 20, 2019, at Alliance Airport, Texas. Watch in awe as the world famous U.S. Navy Blue Angels Flight Demonstration Squadron, U.S. Air Force's F 22 Raptor, and F 16 Viper demo teams and other dynamic performers soar through North Texas skies. Family friendly ground activities include static displays and the STEM Discovery Zone powered by Lockheed Martin. And when the show is over, Why sit in traffic when you can enjoy a free concert to close out each day? Enjoy Austin Allsup from The Voice on Saturday and the Scooter Brown Band on Sunday. General admission is free. Discounted parking and premium upgraded seating, family discount packages, souvenir caps, and more are available now through October 18. Proceeds benefit local nonprofit organizations. Details at allianceairshow.com. Gates open at 9 a.m. and performances begin around 10 a.m. That's the Bell Fort Worth Alliance Air Show, October 19th and 20th, 2019 at Alliance Airport. A tradition for the future. 
Joe, that was pretty epic that you got to, I thought the conversation, the interview really went very well, despite how many miles difference were there between you two? Well, gosh, I didn't do the math, but he was in, where did he say he was? Just uh, inside of Germany there. And I was calling yeah. from San Diego. So I don't know, eight or 9,000, but that's <laughs> pretty epic. I'll yeah. say that. You know, what really struck me as kind of interesting is 75, 80 years ago, he and I could have been enemies battling it out in the skies and uh here we are a couple guys now and allies and it's weird i don't know what to think about that but it did occur to me at one point in the middle of our conversation for some reason shifting back to what he was going through i loved his description of the eurojet 200 the ej 200 his motor right okay. he's got two of them on board yeah. how about the point where he talks about being down low altitude so pretty dense air obviously and he said he can select blower and in plus or minus five seconds, he's supersonic. Man, I found that hard to believe. I wasn't going to tell him I didn't believe it, but I guess yours and my background in the aircraft we flew, we certainly didn't have that capability. So it just, that's mind blowing. It is. I mean, if you look at the EJ200, so, and I know there's some kind of metric conversions going on there, but uh, mill power, we'll call it 60 kilonewtons or about 13 and a half thousand pounds. Whereas when he selects AB, this is for one engine, you're looking at 90 kilonewtons, which is about little over 20,000 pounds in afterburner. But the engine itself only weighs 2,200 pounds or 990 kilograms. And it's uh, very comparable. What I'm getting at here, sorry, beating around the bush, is the compared to the F414, which is going to be the Super Hornet engine. Mm -hmm. So mill power, it's 13,000 pounds as opposed to the EJ200, 13 and a half. And when you go to AB, it's up at about 22,000 pounds, which is close to that 20,000 pounds of the uh, EJ200. But I think what you're going to notice, is he, and he alluded to this, is that's the thrust, and they're very similar, and obviously multiply by two. But when it comes to the weight of the airframe, I think that's where the real performance is very influenced, and that would be that, didn't he say it was all composites? Yeah, mostly. Of course, you have to have some structure that's aluminum or other materials, but the whole shell, the body of the aircraft is composite material, and that's going to save you a lot of weight, and it's quite strong. Yeah, so that's uh, just kind of cool stuff about the thrust of weight, I thought. And then there's kind of a parting shot there about the Meteor missile, which uh, I think it IOC'd back in 2016, so it's kind of new to the front. Have you heard much about it? No, I just remember back in the day, like, hearing that it was coming, and as with all things like this, it always takes longer than you expect, but I never really dug too deep into it. What do you know about it? It's a solid propellant ramjet, meaning there's no compressor. There's no moving part compressor section in the jet itself. It just uses... Honestly, the ram compression, if you will, of the air coming into the front to squeeze or compress and then to heat up the uh, air, then obviously they're going to add, it's got the uh, the propellant to it. So it travels at about Mach 4, and uh, it's just uh, pretty impressive, I'd say, technology. So yeah, IOC in 2016, and then they got a bunch of countries that are using it currently. Okay. Well, so, but if it travels that fast, I mean, can it be very maneuverable? Well, that's a good point is that uh, control power now, and I'll tell you what, I know I kind of had the eyes roll back in my head on the uh, P-Factor stuff last time, so I'll keep it to a minimum, <laughs> okay. but, but you do have to worry about, yeah, the faster you go, the harder it is to turn. Think of dog on linoleum, mm -hmm. right? So. All right, fair enough. Now, people, by the way, did enjoy the P-Factor discussion, at least the ones who took the time to respond, so uh, I thought <laughs> you did a nice job on that. All right, cool. Well, again, big thanks to Enzo for dialing in, and uh, just a great description and uh, getting back to the very first things we said on this episode a nice distinction there between that aircraft and the Rafale and hopefully soon we'll find out how the two of them even are different from the Gripen awesome I can't wait cool all right. Well, as always, we want to thank our new Patreon strike lead, Dennis Patretti, and Airboss Sandra Newman. Our Patreon supporters really help keep the show going. Plus, they enjoy exclusive benefits. Head on over to patreon.com and look for the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And this is the point in the show where we would like to remind everyone that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Now, Sunshine, you said you're going to be off for a little bit here, but uh, hopefully we'll pick it back up with you. Are you doing anything fun? You didn't really talk about it, but if you're going to be away from a cell phone, that sounds like it could be interesting. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun, dude. So the, the next week will be off the grid, kind of doing some uh, wilderness stuff with my family. Oh. And then after that, it's more Navy stuff. So I'll be off the grid for other reasons. Okay. But, yeah. All right. Well, that sounds good. And here's a new one, Sunshine. Not for you necessarily, because you won't be here, but for everyone else. Last episode, you remember we had Enzo give a little lead in for this episode. Well, for next week, we have some homework for you. We finally corralled 
retired United States Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Dave Burke, call sign Chip. He's going to be on the show, and we're going to leverage his interview with Jocko, and he's part of the Jocko team and their Echelon Front leadership seminars and all the different things they do. Well, if you go to the Jocko podcast, look for episode 69, then you want to listen to them. Now, this is a bit of an investment. It's a little over three hours long, so uh, that should keep you uh, busy between fighter pilot podcast episodes, but if you go listen to that, you'll get a great background on Chip and his time in Ramadi, and we are going to leverage off of that in our discussion coming up next time on the Fighter Pilot Podcast on what we're calling Anglico, a follow-on to Ford Air Controllers that we first talked about with Chili Culpepper. So go look for the Jocko Podcast and listen to episode 69. Well, Sunshine, we're going to miss you, buddy. Yeah, I'll be hopefully back shortly thereafter. So, but thanks, Jello. Okay, well, I'll let you do it then. What do we always say? Let's get out of here. (laughs) All right, buddy. Take care. See you. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.